Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Asman, here with my friend of the Chavruta, Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Shkalim, daf page nine. Well, we hope everybody had a very nice Pesach. Uh, maybe it was a good time for you to catch up on the daf, and uh, we'll get straight to it today. The Gemara is speaking about here the idea that when the coin actually went into the Lishka to do the Chumat HaLishka, to actually take the Shkalim, he needed to do a variety of things to make sure that it didn't look like there was any possibility that the coin could have taken any of the shkalim themselves. So, for example, somebody with long hair couldn't do the withdrawal. Um, they would maybe go through all of the um, uh, threads of their woolen clothes to make sure that nothing was hidden. Um, and even to the point to say uh, that, you know, they um, would keep talking to the Kohen to make sure that they could, the coin couldn't put anything in his mouth. And then the Gemara goes on from here to give, an, you know, sort of an interesting discussion about the idea of sort of avoiding suspicion. And it reads as follows. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman b'shem Rabbi Yonatan. So Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman said in the name of Rabbi, uh, of Rabbi uh, Yonatan. matsanu. So in Torah Nevi'im and Ketuvim, meaning in all parts of Tanakh we find, that a person should sort of literally, or some of the English would translate this, sort of satisfy, you know, the scrutiny, let's say, of human beings, just as he would satisfy the scrutiny of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of Hashem. And I thought this concept was interesting because I think often, in a way, people are sort of maybe... Uh, we think of it a little bit differently that, you know, it's we're more worried about what people think about us. And maybe we don't have as much Yirat Shemayim. We're not as scared of God as we should be. Um, but here it's really the other notion. In other words, it's here the assumption is people are really scared of God. Right. But what we're trying to say is that you need to be as careful to not raise suspicion with your fellow human. Um, and again, I think this is a little bit of a different way than we normally think about the idea of suspicion. And so it reads as follows, where do we see it in the Torah? And so here they're going to quote a pasuk um, that's from Bamidbar, Perak Lamed Bet, pasuk Chafet, chapter 32, which says, right? You should be innocent in the eyes of Hashem and of Israel. So in other words, the idea is you need to make sure that you look innocent or free of suspicion from God and also from people. But Nevi'im Inayim, where do we see it in the prophets? So this is from Yehoshua, Parakhav Bet, Pasukhav Bet, chapter 22, verse 22, Dichtiv, Al Elohim Hashem, V'Yisrael. So it says, Almighty God Hashem, He knows and Israel shall know. So this is also talking about the equivalent that God and um, the people, right, should all know or they should all know the same truth, that there should be no suspicion from God or from people. Back to Vimeinayin, and where do we see it in Ketuvim? And now they're going to quote a pasuk from Mishlei, Paragimel Pasuk Dalit, chapter 3, uh, verse 4, which says, that a person should find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. So what they're trying to emphasize here is it's not just 
one pasuk, but in all sections of the Torah, this idea that we need to make sure not to raise suspicion, not only in God, but also in humans, is really an underlying tenet in Tanakh itself. And then finally concludes with this discussion, Gamliel Zuga Sha'al Le Rabbi Yossi Bar Rabbi Boon. So Gamliel Zuga asked Rabbi Yossi, the son of Boon, Ezehi Hamuvchar Shebechulam, which is the clearest of them all. In other words, which is the best pasuk of all of these? So Rabbi Yossi told him that it's the pasuk from Bamidbar that he felt was uh, sort of the best pasuk to explain this and uh, to underline this concept. So interesting passage because it's, again, not how we usually think about it. Often I think more people are worried about what humans think of them as opposed to God. And here we're really saying the opposite and that the concept is the coin who really went to get the shkalim is doing all these things so that no person could suspect him of, you know, accidentally taking even a shekel during the Trumat Halishka. So that was just a little tidbit that I wanted to read there. Now I'm going to move on to the next Mishnah. This Mishnah teaches us something interesting that we learned before about Rebbe Gamliel's specific household. So the members of Rebbe Gamliel's household, so remember this is the Nasi, would go, and there's multiple Rebbe Gamliel's also. So there's actually, you know, the three major Rebbe Gamliel's that we tend to talk about, but this is really talking about the Nasi's household. So what they would do is they would go into the Lishka itself with their shekels in between their fingers. And they would throw it before the person who was doing the actual withdrawal. And so therefore the person who was getting the withdrawal would intentionally make sure that the coin from the house of Rabban Gamliel, right? Or I think the implication here, would you agree, Anne, is that multiple members of Rabban Gamliel's household would do this, um, would get pushed into the box. So that when they took that first uh, uh, group of coins, Rabban Gamliel's household's coins were absolutely uh, put there. And so the idea is they wanted to make sure, as the Gemara will explain, that their individual coins were actually used to purchase the korbanis, even though it's not necessary to do that. You don't really need to make that sure. It's just something that they like to do. I do find it interesting that the Gemara really doesn't comment on it either which way that this was good or bad. I found it to be somewhat elitist, I guess I would say, you know, sort of they had access in a different way. And just because they liked it, was it necessarily something that they should do? That was sort of my judgy way of reading it when I read it, but the Gemara really doesn't seem to have a problem with it at all. I don't know, Anne, how you felt about it when you re- read about this particular I not, custom. I did not have this reaction. Um, I found it more descriptive, I guess, which I guess is how the Gemara presents it. Yeah, it's totally descriptive. I, there's something about it that bothered me, but it's totally descriptive. Uh, we'll move on now. So then the Mishnah goes on. Ana Torim Torim Omer Lehem so the person who's withdrawing does not withdraw until he says to sort of the other temple, I guess, administrators who are there, should I withdraw? So he sort of asks it as a question. And so three times they say back to the person, withdraw, withdraw, withdraw. And I'm not going to be able to say this word correct, correctly. 
So after he takes out the first withdrawal, he covers the remaining coins with leather covers. So that's how he would uh, do this first. So this, remember, this would take place 15 days before Pesach. And you would just basically cover it uh, with leather so that any shkalim that sort of came later would remain separate from the coins that had already been withdrawn from. That, that's the basic idea with, with doing this leather. And so again, when they did the second withdrawal, and that would be uh, 15 days uh, before Shavuot. So again, they would again cover it with the leather. But when they did the third one, which was before Sukkot, 15 days before Sukkot, uh, they would not cover it then. The Lama Hayam why would they cover it for the first and second ones? Because maybe when they came back, you know, to withdraw again, they would forget and they would always withdraw from the funds that had always already been withdrawn from. Then finally, it says, So when they did the first withdrawal, that was sort of on behalf of everybody who lived in Eretz Yisrael, because presumably not all of the coins could get there in time. So they needed to make sure that they, you know, so probably the people who were closest, those coins got there first. The second one was on behalf of the people who lived in the cities sort of surrounding Eretz Yisrael, the Hashlishit Lashem Baba Ulashem Madai Ulashem Ulashem Medinot Harechokot. And the third withdrawal was on behalf of people who lived in Babel, uh, Medea, and people who lived very, very far away. So even though these were communal offerings, there still was sort of a sense that the Shkalim trickled in based on where you lived at different times. And therefore, each the the community that you were sort of withdrawing on behalf of and purchasing things on behalf of sort of had to do with I only think of it as like a concentric circles. The Eretz Yisrael people are in the inner circle. Then you sort of have the people living right outside of Eretz Yisrael, and then the third circle is the people who lived quite far away. I think there's a factor here that I never really had considered, namely when you've got these communal offerings, who. <laughs> And they're daily. I mean, not this necessarily, right? But just in general, the the issue of who pays for the communal offerings and how that is um, engineered had never really caught my attention before. And I think that this is just one example, I'm sure, of how it was done. Obviously, there are plenty of people bringing actual animals to the Beit Dash as well. But the idea that there are that there's a collection that goes, you know, that ranges the distance of however far the Jews themselves were living. I think, um, you know, makes the point, you know, that there, of course it had to be funded. Well, and I think now as I'm reading it again, even though I prepped this before, I think that's probably why Rabbi Gamliel's household's behavior wasn't really met with objection because there really was this idea to make it clear that your actual individual shekel that you gave or your machatzir shekel, I should be clear, really was tied to a particular purchasing and so for them, they like the idea of really watching it be sort of taken by the person doing the 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 toraming, right? <laughs> really taking the coin, and they really wanted to see it go in um, and be used. And I think you could sort of see why that was important to do, because if all these people are giving the machatzid hashekel, 
you could see how an individual would be like, all right, does my shekel really make a difference or not make a difference? So this idea of, of saying that he, you know, they're performing it on behalf of different groups, that the person really specified who the different withdrawals were for, I think is a way to really, it's, it's symbolic in a way, but, um, and, we, and we kept saying before that you're withdrawing it on behalf of all Jews, but on the other hand, you're sort of tying it to a specific place, which I think just makes people feel that they have much more of a connection to the activity that's going on in the Beit HaMikdash itself. Right, right. And I think so much time is, you know, so much attention rather is given to from the other side of it. Oh, look, we're taking a census. We're taking a census from everybody. We've spent a good amount of time already in Masachat Shkalim talking about how this was an uh, an equalizer, you know, and and the this now paying attention to what they did with the funds, I think is, oh, yeah, good point. You know, right. And so I think uh, it's my failing. It's my failing. I'm not I'm not suggesting it's the Gemara's, you know. But I, I've always thought about it, you know, from the other side. Right. But and I think part of the way of making it equal was at some point sort of calling out all different areas where Jews live and saying, like, OK, this is on behalf of you and this is on behalf right. of you. And and I think that also was practical because there's no way the coins from Bavel got there in time for the first withdrawal. So it's really making clear to everybody at, at some point during the year, your money is the money that made the difference. Right, right, right. It makes it's it, it's a good system. I mean, I don't know if it really was a good system, but it sounds like it, it it's much more organized and accounting for everything than I might have ever considered. Um, I want to jump to the end of the uh, it's not the end of the daf. Our daf ends with parak, you know, going into parak Ravi into the fourth parak, and we're gonna hold that until tomorrow, which is where the real where it real be, really begins. But I'm at the end of our third parak. Um, which goes back to your data to what you were talking about in terms of what it means to kind of conduct yourself with without blame, right? To do everything really perfectly. And we have this Breita, so the Gemara continues to bring this Breita in the name of Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, who I'm going to tell you about in a moment. But it begins with this list of Midot, which I feel like anybody who has learned Mesila Yisharim as, you know, also known as Masil Shisharm, right, has encountered this list, um, or at least a version of it. So it begins by saying, um, the Bright itself says that when you have Zrizut, right, this energy to get to something quickly, that will get you to cleanliness, and cleanliness will get you to purity and purity will get you to sanctity or holiness and a holiness will get you to anava to humility and the idea is that this you know and then at the end of the day you've recognized how low you are after you've achieved this holiness this kind of um, domino effect of improving yourself from one mida one character trait to the next um, is I think it's something that we kind of take as a given because We've already been exposed to this in all kinds of different ways, but this is, I would say, the source. And now I just want to mention who Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair was. It's my term for a who's who. Right? So first of all, he's a Tata, of course, and he's a contemporary of Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, and at least one source suggests that he was his father-in-law, that Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair was Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai's father-in-law, and he was known as a miracle worker, and which is, is um, I think, relevant in the context of here somebody who's advocating for piety. Uh, he was 
considered incredibly righteous. Um, and the other members of Chazal, the other sages, admired him to the extent that somebody says, you know, at some point, oh, he was even greater than Moshe Rabbeinu because he was just this, um, just this pious. The Gemara says in, where was it? We saw it already, Yodena, right? No, it's coming up. It's coming up in a few dapim. The, the donkey of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair uh, refused to eat from grain that had not had master taken, that had not been tithed. So we'll see that when we get there. Um, and the key thing, I think, in this particular, or what, maybe not the key thing, but a key thing here is that we don't have much said in his name. So the fact that this is what we have re you know, retained that is ascribed to him is you know, a big deal. It makes sense that this would be at least it makes sense to me that this would be preserved if, you know, the this is his reputation and this is his list of, or his ladder of how you get to be, you know, um, you know, to, to cleanse your soul, how you, how you get to be the most pious person you can be, which really ends up being, um, you know, on this ladder, we, we get to Anava. We're, I'm going to continue it now. Because the Gemara continues, it will lead you to the fear of sin. That will lead you to piety. That will lead you to um, divine inspiration. Um, right? Because that's when, um, I guess, Hashem recognizes that you have achieved this level of piety. Ruach HaKodesh itself, once you've achieved that level of divine grace, I suppose, you can, you, it leads to the resurrection of the dead. And once we've hit the resurrection of the dead, that brings us to the arrival of Eliyahu, the prophet Elijah, right? And he is the harbinger of, really, of redemption, of the Mashiach. Um, and then the Gemara goes through and brings sources, you know, proofs, proof text for for the fact that each of these things um in fact leads to the next right like the idea that um any one practice or trait can bring you further to the next one which as i said i don't think it's such a, a far cry for us to understand this but the idea is it's found you know let's talk about the the psukim the verses that talk about you know atonement and the koanim that bring to atonement and then Let's talk about Nikyut, the cleanliness in the context, again, of when each one, basically each one, and you can look inside and see this very easily yourselves, that, um, has proof texts that are not directly talking about the Midah, the actual trait, but when you investigate it, it says, oh, well, that yes, that does make sense, right? If you have, for example, a woman following um, childbirth, which is the verse on Tara, right? Uh, about how Nikyut leads to Tara, right? So the woman who brings her, she comes to to purify herself after having given birth. The verse says, right? The Kohen makes an atonement for her and she's then going to be pure, meaning she has cleansed herself of any kind of sin, any kind of hate, and she achieves Tara. But the the plain sense of that verse is really that she's, simply atoning from whatever tumah she'd had during the process of childbirth. So the the psukim themselves kind of jump off the more literal meaning, I guess, to a more metaphorical meaning, which is exactly in line of each of these different traits. Um, and then at the very end, 
the Gemara gives us a whole other list of how we get from one thing to the next. And this is in the name of Rabbi Meir. Tana b'shem Rabbi Meir. Kol mi shekavua be'eretz Yisrael u'medaber b'lashan ha'kodesh v'ochel perutav b'tara. Anybody who is um, is dwelling or lives permanently in the land of Israel, meaning not a brief visit, u'medaber b'lashan ha'kodesh and speaks the holy tongue, meaning Hebrew, and eats from the fruits of Eretz Yisrael in purity, right? And recites Kriyachma in morning in the morning and in the evening, meaning that's the mitzvah of Kriyachma. That person will get the news, right, that he is in fact Ben Olam Haba, that he has achieved the world to come. And whether this is uh, I mean, to me it's a clear parallel uh, to the statement of or the bright of Rapinchas Ben Yair. Rapinchas Ben Yair has many, many more stages till you get to the idea of the promise of redemption. And here, Rabbi Meir, in a, at least the way it's set up in the Gemara, has a smaller statement in terms of, you know, how to live in Eretz Israel and do the basics, right? You know, live there, you know, speak Hebrew, Eat the fruits of the land, batahara, in purity. Dav in your or recite your kriyachma, and you will be, you know, again. Does that mean that you will already you are already living in olam haba, or that you will then merit olam haba? I suppose this is open to interpretation, but I think it's a really nice way, both of these passages, to close off this para. Um, it, it makes it seem so easy. <laughs> that was my impression at the end. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the first statement that goes through all those different levels makes it sound much, much more complicated. And then you sort of get to this here, uh, you know, well, I'll back up, you know, Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair says, just sounds, it's it's difficult to do. And I, I'm glad you read this, Brisa, because I think it's just a piece of sort of Jewish literacy, you know, that this is what the Messias Yasharim is based on, is this particular small passage. And interesting that it's based on a Tana that we don't know too much about. Um, but then sort of the conclusion of this whole section, you know, it's just, yeah, but then you could just do a Rabbi Mayer, who's obviously a much more famous Tana says to do. And that sort of seems like the much more easy path. <laughs> so I sort of was struck by the contrast between these two Bryce's. So I think also, this is why I said before that we're kind of, we have the perspective of the, the Gemara itself provides by putting them, the fact that it juxtaposes these two passages tells us this as like again oh here's the simple path i'm not sure that rabbi Meir himself was arguing to make this point to rabbi Yair, right like it's it's kind of a really it reads like a very different text to me but then when they're next to each other in proximity you say ah here's a different way to redemption right and i will note of course that here we are in the holiday of pesach the discussion of redemption and how you get there is not far afield. Right. I don't, again, I don't think it's a machlokas. I agree with you. I just think it's two different approaches and, you know, in characteristic, the way I like to learn, but didn't really think about it till now, I would want to think a little bit more about who each of these people are and why is this their particular approach? So maybe this is something that we will uh, come back to. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and its approach to life and advice on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.